looking to start a podcast but don't know where to begin? Look no further. The team at Dodge Media Productions has 20 years of experience as podcast listeners and observing the industry and eight years experience in podcast production. We can help you take your podcast from idea to fruition and we'll make the process seamless and easy. We'll help you with everything from recording and editing to hitting the charts on Apple Podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Contact us today and let's get started. DodgeMediaProductions.com You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 155. We are going to be talking about Suddenly Last Summer from 1959, and it we watched it on either Prime or Apple, it's three ninety nine on one of those. I think we watch on Apple. I have never heard of this film before. It was recommended by a listener. Yeah, me either. And it was one of our winners from last year. Superfan Stacy gave me a list that I could choose from, and her whole list was just so good. I put all of her movies in the popcorn bucket, but. Um, Definitely one of them I picked is like her pick, but right. So the director is Joseph Mankiewicz and he did the ghost, uh, the ghost of Mrs. Muir for, in 1947. And he also did all about Eve in 1950, which I love that movie. It stars Elizabeth Taylor, Catherine Hepburn, Montgomery Cliff, Eddie Fisher, and Albert Decker. The DP was Jack Hilliard, who also did The Bridge on the River Kwai in 1957 and Casino Royale in 1965. The writer of the, I think it was probably a play because it was Tennessee Williams, who also did Streetcar Named Desire and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. And then Gore Vidal wrote the, he adapted this one for the screen. And he also wrote many plays and television series. The synopsis for this film is a surgeon is assigned the case of a young woman who whose aunt wants her lobotomized to cover up a family secret. And I don't mean to laugh, but the reason is I've been hearing lately like historical stories and there's husbands who would have and sometimes families who would have their loved ones deemed insane and so therefore put in the institutionalized and so it's almost like is it because divorce wasn't highly looked upon or you know I mean it was it looked it was looked down upon and so were people mostly men looking for ways to get rid of their wives so they could either have a second wife or a girlfriend or depending on the religion they weren't even allowed or they were very difficult to get and also depended on some jurisdictions. So I believe, for example, in California, people would go down to Mexico to get divorced uh, because it was it was easier uh, legally. So this takes it to a whole nother level. This isn't just institutionalizing her. We're going to lobotomize her, which wouldn't that... I know they kind of did lobotomies for certain mental disease, which I think didn't work. You just rendered right. the person that dame got wet. Let's lobotomize her. Right. I mean, it's just, I, it's, I can't even fathom it. 
Yeah. Uh, and this is what I was saying the other day that uh, we'll like our grandkids or great grandkids are going to look back at some of our practices and say, you people were monsters. Right. Why did you think that would be reasonable? Yeah. Okay. So I've got, let's see, I think four taglines for you. Okay. Tag me up. Uh, Tennessee Williams shocks you again as he transports you to a strange, new, bold world. Blech. And strange, new, bold world is in bold. Of course. <laughs> and like all caps. Let's see, the next second one is the one they're all talking about. Okay, you that's even say, worse. You could say that about any Yeah, movie. any movie that comes out. Oh, the one they're all talking about this week. Suddenly, last summer... Kathy knew she was being used for something evil. Okay, that's the best so far, but still kind of. These are powers and passions without precedent in motion pictures. Wow. (laughs) Not their best work. No, lots of alliteration in that last one. Yeah. Okay, so we had never heard of this movie. It was not one of the ones... But I was talking to your aunt and she said she did remember this movie, but I'm sure, you know, she was a, a young lass during 1959. A and the picture of, show was probably a, a good alternative to, you know, something to do in the evening. Right. A l- little spoiler alert, but I was mentioning whilst we were watching the film that when my first interaction with Elizabeth Taylor was as a child, she had, was it white, white velvet, white White petals, diamonds. White diamonds. She had a fragrance and she appeared as herself right at that era. But she was an older woman at that time, probably 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, she appeared to be, if I, in my memory, quite a bit older and not unattractive. But holy shnikes in this film, that would put butts in seats. She is absolutely She's just beautiful. Huh? Yeah. And like a sex pot. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't think any like person who likes dames watching the film was thinking, oh, that's fantastic plot line. They were just staring at Elizabeth Taylor on screen. Right. And so I could see how when this came out, it would it would have been a big deal. But yes. that's what people were talking about, even, apparently. Even more so a big deal because she um, was selected. This was her first project after ending her contractual commitment to MGM. At the time, she was the biggest box office draw in Hollywood, and she oh. used this power to insist that Montgomery Cliff be hired for the film. Um, as a result of a 1956 car accident near the home of Taylor and her then-husband, Michael Wielding, Montgomery had become heavily dependent on drugs and alcohol. And when he was unable to find a doctor that was willing to attest to his insurability, producer Sam Spiegel approved his casting and went ahead with the filming anyway. So, but because of Elizabeth Taylor. So, mm-hmm. and I think he was not in a good way, poor Montgomery. And so she kind of got him this job because they were friends. Yeah. He, he passed away relatively early in his life. I think late forties or something, but interestingly enough, he was uh, a friend of Dorothy, I believe. And that is a key plot point in the Tennessee Williams play in this film, even though he does not play the character who is gay, that I believe was the secret that Catherine Hepburn was trying so hard to keep, which at the time this film was made was a thing that people would be ashamed of and try to keep secret. I mean, I, I don't think that was was out of line for the culture at the time, although watching it now it is kind of sad because, you know, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, 
Yeah. What's right? the big deal? Yeah. yeah. Who doesn't have a brother who's gay? Right. And I also think it's interesting to look back because I remember in the late, maybe mid to late 80s, Elizabeth Taylor was a huge supporter and advocate and a philanthropist for the gay causes as well as HIV research. And it makes sense now that, you know, she was friends with Rock Hudson. She was friends with Montgomery Cliff. And so Mm. I think she saw all these, you know, her friends dying and she was wanting to find a cure for this disease that was killing all of them. Yeah. I I think again, from my perspective, the way they reacted to the character of Sebastian was like, he was the cannibal. I mean, their, their reaction to it, like I said, I think even people today who aren't fans of, of gay people don't have in general the, the reaction that was in this film, which was again, probably realistic for the time, but it is difficult for us, or at least I should say for me, I think for the modern viewer though, uh, to kind of resonate with that plot point. You can be aware of it, but I don't, I suspect it landed differently when the film was first released, right? The people in the theater were probably far more scandalized by Sebastian's character. I think most viewers now, like I said, even if they're not uh, big fans of gay people are used to it. It's not that, that, uh, secret and, and scandalous like it once was. And would they not have had the same level of compassion towards what ended up happening to him right. in the end? Because they're like, oh, well, he deserved it or he asked for it. And and I do think some of that is is of the time, right? That there was the implication that Sebastian was getting together with, I would say, underage boys, given the dialogue and the footage shown. And then the mob attacking him I think that was probably, again, of that era, there was a thought that this was depraved and people would go crazy and savage and all those things. When I, I, I think if you, you know, drive through the Castro, you're probably not beset by a mob. Right. It's interesting because the mom's story. Oh, sorry. Let's do your pickup line. And okay, sorry. We'll I, I totally deviated us. So what was the, the first line of this film? Gentlemen, I want to welcome you medical school gentlemen to our new operating theater. Right. And that was Dr. Hochstadter, who's the bureaucrat that runs the Institute. So he's Montgomery Cliff's character's boss. Mm -hmm. And there's somebody, I think it was like Gore Vidal. There was somebody who was on the, no, it was, I wonder if I have it in my notes. There was somebody in that as one of in the theater, as they call it up in the observation area. I think the IMDb trivia list to it is, but it was like a, yeah. Crew member, the writer or producer or something. Or was it Tennessee Williams partner? It was some, yeah, it was somebody's, I think a more. Um, so one thing I wondered, and we're kind of skipped to the end here, but we'll go, we'll just bounce around. I don't think you, did you read The Life of Pi or? Uh, no. Okay. And you haven't seen the movie. I uh, know. But, but you know the. I know of it, but it's of my like the probably. The animals, is it an allegory? Yeah. It's weirdness, but yeah. But it's not weirdness. It's like a metaphor, right? Is that what it is? It's part of this magic realism genre that I can't stand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. Hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I'm but gonna. what I'm asking you, what is the English or grammatically correct? I think, that, I don't know. I think allegory, maybe, I don't know. It's basically the animals are a representation of humans in the, specifically in the life of Pi. Yeah. And so I wondered if that was going to be the case because the mom tells a story at the beginning to the doctor about her and her son, Sebastian, and oh, it was the turtles. They come out and they're watching right. the baby turtles, like the turtle migration. So the mama turtles, they come off onto the beach, they lay their eggs, and then the babies have to like scurry in the moonlight and they follow the moonlight to try to get to the ocean. But there's birds that just wait right. for this and they swoop down and have dinner. And right, which says to me, this is an opportunity for shotgunners to go out and, and, uh, <laughs> Harvest some of those birds, birds and save the turtles. And so I kept wondering, is the thing at the end, like, were those boys really eating him? Or was it more of, like, there were people in, where were they? Bar Barcelona? No, I, I, I thought it was, it was, I thought it was supposed to be... Was it Brazil, Ipanema, or maybe it was just Portugal, but... Wherever they were. Wherever I they thought were. maybe somebody just, like, beat him up or... That's an interesting... And didn't, like, consume him. So I would say from a, a filmmaking or even broader storytelling perspective, that was weird. Unnecessarily so. The end, the way it was shot was very kind of surreal and uh, did you get the sense that they were eating him because i only know that from reading the wikipedia article i i, I did get that sense from i think more the wikipedia article than anything but i thought there was a line of dialogue in there where one of them says like yeah they were eating him or something they did say something like consume or something right. but i yeah. thought but to like me, like they bit him or they said right, something like that. Yeah. The images, it looked like they were just like beating him up. Right. Well, uh, probably at that time they couldn't, couldn't. show more than that. I, I think it was, um, and again, I'm sure Tennessee Williams and, and the director intended this, but I felt like the, the film's tone changed. Like at the, the first half of the film, I, I, I enjoyed more when it was kind of this, um, it very much felt like a play where Montgomery Cliff and Catherine Hepburn in the garden and they're having a long conversation and I was watching and there were some pretty long shots as well but basically those two actors and like I said it felt like a play to me like oh, we're going to build a garden set and then these two characters are going to talk about stuff so that I kind of enjoyed a bit more then they went to the insane asylum and that was a little weird and then they went to Ipanema or wherever and that was a lot weird so you know to me the the film is really noteworthy for, I, I think, Elizabeth Taylor at the height of her pulchritude and for, uh, I think, addressing the topic of homosexuality. I think it was kind of groundbreaking for the time. But it's fascinating to me because Tennessee Williams, I, I believe, was gay because they talk about his partner being on set. But I, I don't know that for sure. He mm -hmm. didn't come out to me. Right. Maybe he was responding, you know, I have to put myself in a 1959 mindset, but it didn't seem like he was, he, it was like he was playing into the stereotypes of a homosexual. Yes, I could see, yeah, that, that interpretation. But again, that could have been the only way you could get the play and or film made was to depict things in a certain kind of way. 
or he was maybe thinking just for the dramatic portion of it, because it probably would have been a boring play if Catherine Hepburn was like, oh, Sebastian, Sebastian, and then they went on about their merry business. It's interesting, too, like, was she, instead of just being a grieving mom whose son had been killed by a bunch of people, to then, I mean, obviously, I guess, I guess it kind of makes sense that she would take it out on Kathy, her niece, because if you felt like she was responsible and took him to that place. I think they established pretty well that there is some sort of emotional incest between the mother and Sebastian. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Uh, and so, yeah, so maybe if she blamed, yeah, if she blamed Catherine for that, then, and also, I mean, I guess it would, if someone's mentally ill, there's a line in there where Hockstetter says, this is very unorthodox. And Kukrowicz says, well, so is insanity. And, and I, I think they were talking about his treatment of Catherine, but I think you could also say that applies to, to the mom as well. I, mm-hmm. I'm missing her, her name here. The, Venable? Was yeah, that Mrs. her name? Venable. Uh-huh. Mrs. Venable. So let me just read this and see if there's something. I mean, it's long, so I'm trying to. So following a streetcar was in 51. And then Cat on a Haunted Roof was 58. So then this is his third. This is a third Tennessee Williams play to be adapted for the screen that dealt with the subject of homosexuality. Although it was far more, more explicit in its treatment than either of the previous films were allowed to be under the motion picture production code. Working in conjunction with the National Legion of Decency and the Production Code Administration gave the filmmakers special dispensation to depict Sebastian Venable's declaring. Since the film illustrates the horrors of such a lifestyle, it can be considered moral in, in theme, even though it deals with sexual perversion. Publicity stills of Sebastian were shot, showing him as a, hands, as a handsome, if drawn, man in a white suit but his face is never seen in the released film. Williams asserted that no actor could portray Sebastian convincingly and that his absence from the screen only made his presence more strongly felt. I just, I keep coming back to, I find it interesting that like the, I guess it just, I don't want him portrayed as a pedophile basically. Yeah. Again, I think that's unfortunate, but probably common at the time. That people thought that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's but your it was, perspective. But it was written by Tennessee Williams. Why did he portray, maybe, was there like some self-hatred or, you uh-huh. know what I'm saying? Like, I just thought. I, I do, I can't I answer have. that question. Okay, let's move on. Okay. I'm getting hung up. So obviously themes of betrayal and mental illness, families. Montgomery Cliff found the long scenes exhausting and had to have his longest scene broken up into multiple shots as one or two lines at a time. And his shaky performance led the director Mankiewicz to ask Spiegel several times to replace the actor. So he didn't want Montgomery Cliff there, but they kind of had to. Most of the crew were sympathetic towards Montgomery, but Catherine Hepburn was especially resentful of the poor treatment to which Mankwitz subjected him. 
And Hepburn found Mankiewicz's conduct so unforgivable that as soon as he called the final cut of the film, she asked him to confirm that her services were no longer required. And when she did, she spat in his face. As a director, that's a sign you didn't get on well with your actor. (laughs) But it kind of wasn't his fault. It was the studio was saying that... The script, right? Can't go yell at Tennessee for the long, long bits of dialogue. Right. I think I maybe found, let's see, Taylor following her final monologue, wherein she describes Sebastian's murder, burst into tears and could not be consoled. Using method acting techniques, she tapped into her grief over the 1958 death of her third husband, Mike Todd, who died in March. Elizabeth and Eddie Fisher were married the following May of 59. So I think it was Eddie Fisher. Oh, well, we, Eddie Fisher was one of the boys, they said, who clawed right. Montgomery Cliff. He rushed to her side and then made his way around to her front. Right. <laughs> Watch. Um, what is that from? It's a Carrie Fisher. Letters, uh, postcards from the edge. No, it's not from that. It's her one woman stand. Like it. She didn't really do a stand-up. It's like a one-woman show where she goes through her life and she's talking about... I, I thought I read it in the book she wrote. Well, yeah. About her life, autobiographical. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. She, I think she used the joke more than oh, once. it's a good one. Because it's a good one. That's a really good one. I have a note here. Tennessee Williams underwent psychoanalysis in fact, and in fact suffered from depression and addiction. His plays frequently contain characters who dealt with various emotional issues and psychoses. In this story, the issue at hand is clearly that of covert incest syndrome, a type of abuse in which a parent looks to their child for emotional support that would normally be sought in a romantic partner. So that's Mrs. Venable looked to Sebastian for more than just motherly love and was angry that he got on so well with, I think in just a cousin, a platonic cousin way with Kathy. Well, all of the drawings in his study indicate he was more interested in the gents than the lady. Right. So <laughs> this was not a happy time for Catherine Hepburn. Her husband, Spencer Tracy, or here it says her lover, Spencer Tracy, who was critically ill at the time. And so this production kept her from him. He was ill from years of drinking and smoking and pill popping. They were taking their toll. And she also disliked how Mankiewicz was favoring Dame Elizabeth Taylor and treating Montgomery Cliff. And she hated this movie's final shot. And like I said, she spat on both the director and the producer. Okay. I thought Dame was one of those British uh, like titles that was awarded. Yeah. Yeah. But Liz was an American. Right. How did she get a Dame? I'm just curious. I didn't research that. All right. So if we have a listener from Britain who could clarify that for us, it'd be great. I mean, great. I can look it up afterwards. Yeah, we it. all could. Okay. I loved the descending open elevator. Yeah. That was totally fun. And there's actually a fun shot where the camera drops as, as, uh, as she lowers, but yeah, you know, the ones that go up the stairs slowly, not nearly as cool as that one. That was pretty boss. The thing that was cool is because Catherine Hepburn just, you know, as a human being has this presence, you know, I think, I mean, even when I saw her interviewed, 
near her later years when I knew of her from on golden pond more. She (laughs) very much had this. She could have been a dame. Like she has a presence, like a re Hmm. a regalness about her. And so what was so dramatic about like she would ascend and descend and she would be talking to the person. Usually I think it was um, Montgomery Cliff's character, Dr. Kukaric. Yeah. She was mostly addressing him. But it, in this very dramatic way of like, you know, kind of like she's ascending to heaven and then she's coming down. It, it was right. just, it was so cool. Well, now you, of course, remind me of the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons, but <laughs> very well, Bart, I shall send you to heaven before I send you to hell. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Wow. I wonder if we have a movie with Kelsey Grammer in, in the bucket. You know, down Periscope, he is in that, and he plays a character named Dodge. So maybe we'll have to throw that in for 2025. For a bonus or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do have here that Tennessee Williams was not a fan of this movie, and he hated the way it reworked his material. So maybe if we read the play that it's based on. Oh, that's a really good point. Maybe it was substantially more homophilic than homophobic back in the, the play. Right. Right. Yeah. Mankiewicz later admitted that he thought the source material was badly constructed and based on pop psychology. So, boy, nobody liked anybody right. <laughs> or respected well, their work. Liz and Montgomery liked each yes, other. Yes, yes, this is true. Yeah. So, speaking, though, of, uh, of the writing, I'm curious if the original play had dementia precox, which isn't a real thing. Oh, I was going to look it up, and I ran out of time. Yeah, it's, it's not a real thing, but... I have to assume that that was in the writer's mind for Armageddon when he came up with space dementia. Right. (laughs) You can make him any dementia you want. Was there any head trauma in this film? I did not uh, make note of any head trauma, which now there was quite a bit of shaking of dames who were hysterical, (laughs) but no actual head trauma. But I, I maybe missed, did they smack her around? Sometimes they slapped hysterical dames, not just shook them. But this was more shaken dame syndrome than it was slapping her. But it was, it was right around the corner. It was implied that she, they were going to start smacking people. Yeah, she was struggling. She was, which is funny because she wasn't really struggling with a mental health issue so much as she was struggling with the family secrets. Which She was being gaslit. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And threatened with lobotomy. You would think a person would get a little weird when they were threatened with lobotomy. Right, right. Like she kept trying to escape and it's because her aunt had the money and the power to do bad things. Okay. Of course, they're going to jab a needle into your brain. Anyone would escape. That's a sign of mental health. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Kathy was the healthiest person in this production. I'm pretty close. Yeah. Poor dear. Okay. Let's see. I do believe that Kathy and Dr. Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. Yeah. Catherine smooches Kukrowicz during their first meeting at the asylum. And then she smooches him at the end of the film in the sunroom. But I made a note that I think he roofied her before that. God, this movie. Because he gave her something. And I love this. Time for your medicine and your daiquiri in that order. So you got you got to throw the alcohol on top to supercharge the sedatives. Oh dear! So that was a little a a, a, a little sketchy there, if you ask me. I did love like this 
like the cinematography, the style of this. Oh yeah. Like you said, they built the set. I love the old movies where, you know, you know, it's a painted backdrop and you just go with it. So that garden was awesome. Yeah. So as far as camera work goes, he may not be with us, but I'd love to hunt up that camera operator and give him a fist bump or a high five because the focus pulling on that was spot on throughout their conversations. But also I did note that that set, did they bring in live plants and pots? Because that looked like, even though it was black and white, it still looked like a, a right. crazy like Jurassic era garden. It was very cool. Very mm -hmm. cool. And they had, as I mentioned before, Venable and Kukrovich have a lot of dialogue in there at the beginning of the film, which is very cool. Yeah. I, I like the look of it. Okay. I interrupted our categories. Um, I don't believe there was any driving. The only um, automotive bit we get is she shows up in a 37 Rolls Royce Phantom three, which just establishes to show that she's incredibly wealthy, but it, it, I don't even know if we see it moving. It's just parked outside the asylum. Mind you, the chauffeur is a black man, which is probably accurate for the time, but that, that was the only driving we got. Well, and weren't there some horrific statues in Mrs. Venable's yes, house? Yes, in her house in the main foyer area. Yes, again, perhaps period correct, but yikes. Yeah, and then, um, okay, so shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. All right. This movie was made in 1959 and it had a budget of $2.5 million. It made 6.4 million domestically. And that was, that was, and then made 9 million worldwide. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. It has a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb and on Rotten Tomatoes, critics gave it 68% while audiences liked it a bit more at 83%. The length of this film is just under two hours at one hour, 54 minutes. And it has a rating of approved because this was pre oh. letter rating. Right. Yeah. It is labeled as a drama mystery thriller. It is a Columbia Pictures film. It was shot primarily in England and the ca the castle. I don't know if that's Mrs. Venable's house, but that was um, shot in Spain. And it was nominated for three Oscars, one for Katherine Hepburn, one for Elizabeth Taylor, and one for the art and set direction. So Yeah, yeah. I'm good with that. It won four... Oh, it says four other wins. Elizabeth for a Donatello Award, Golden Globe, and a Golden Laurel. I think Elizabeth won all of those. And another seven nominations total for the whole film. So it, it did pretty good, I guess, during award season. And now let's see what we're going to watch next week. Next week, we'll be watching Forrest Gump. Run, Forrest, run. Are you looking forward to watching Forrest Gump? I am. I don't know if I've seen it since we saw it in the theater. I know. It's as old as, as we are. Because it came out in 1994. 1994. I guess we are a little bit older because we started in 1993. And for most of that time, I have not talked like Forrest Gump. <laughs> but once we watch it, you probably will. Oh, yeah. It's going to happen. Brace talk, yourself. <laughs> like Forrest a lot. Sorry, everybody. There was a little tippy tap in the background. Taco is not quite settled down yet, but we'll get there. 
It's better than the UFC brawl that was taking place just minutes before we turned on the mic. Right. Yeah. Never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 